Welcome to the Native Artist Podcast from Indigify, where every week we'll take a look into the unique stories and perspectives of Native artists. Hello, my name is Amanda Briegel, and I am Oneida in Stockbridge, Muncie. Anim Buju. Hello, my name is Eric Brot. I am Ojibwe. We are contemporary Native designers who work in Portland, Oregon, and we are GNU. GNU is the only Native American-owned denim line. It has served as a creative outlet to share stories, drawing direct inspiration from their cultures and relatives. Starting in leather goods, they quickly moved into creating denim coats, jackets, vests, and jeans. GNU incorporates family symbols and teachings into their garments, while constructing them of the finest materials like salvaged denim and wax canvas. Now based in Portland, Oregon, they refer to the design of their clothing as Native Americana and have been featured in GQ and Vogue. Husband and wife team Eric and Amanda, who are originally from Wisconsin, dreamt up the idea as a way to pass on stories through garments. I'm your host, Alexis Salee. Stay with us as we speak with Eric and Amanda of GNU. Thank you guys for joining me today on the Native Artist Podcast. We're here in Portland, Oregon, where you base GNU out of, and learning a little bit more about the pieces you create with your brand. Each piece holds a story, and it's been a way that you guys have honored the people in your family, which is really awesome. Tell us about how this all started to come together. Yeah. We started GNU mostly as a creative element to serve as the other side of our brain in many ways, where our day professions are so analytical and can sometimes be so high stakes that we just needed something to balance us out. And I think initially, while Amanda was in school and training, I mean, it was intense, right? Like your training, it was so many hours a week. And, you know, I was working like my first real job at the time. And it was a super analytical, like super intense, high stakes kind of position. And so needing that other side of my brain mm-hmm. to be stimulated as well as just to like bring me like back to balance and center. And then we started doing these projects together. And that's kind of really where it grew. And so a really cool part of your story is you guys are healthcare providers, right? Mm-hmm. Like you still are involved in that. Oh, yeah. That's our day job, and that's how we pay the bills, and that's how we afford the company, GNU. And it's an important part of, you know, our mission as Native people. We both have jobs that are committed to advancing Indigenous health, so it's an important part of kind of our personal mission and identity. And the clothing is just a, uh, another way to exercise another part of our brain, creative side. Wow. I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> how do you guys do it? How do you balance, like, those two things? A lot of the projects we're able to entertain and a lot of the projects that we dive into, like we're so passionate and excited about them that being busy or I guess being 
a little bit intense about them at some ways has allowed us to kind of spread our wings. And mm-hmm. and so, I mean, you have day jobs where you're working 40, 60, 80 plus hours a week. And then to try and balance that out with a creative element to still connect with that part of yourself, you know, instead of just like watching television or something like that. I think it's been a way for us to really explore not only like ourselves, but also like our family stories and family history, as well as connect with other people around the world, which has been really, I think one of the most exciting elements of the entire experience of having GNU has been some of the relationships we've been able to build with other people across the globe. When the brand started coming together, I know it was inspired by, you haven't met your great grandfather, but Mm -hmm sort of the stories and what you have gotten to know about his story and who he is and then creating a jacket based on, you know, the thought of him. Yeah, a lot of serendipity happened there too. And it was more of a thought experiment like you're describing. The first garment we made, it was the heritage coat. And we didn't have any plans to get into apparel at all. Because at the time we were mostly doing like leather goods and using tools and been passed down to me from a long time ago. And using patterns that I had around to make simple, more like leather good stuff. And then one day we're out camping with our dog far out West Texas in Marfa. And she needed to sleep in a little bit longer. It was cold. So she got to sleep in and I drank way too much coffee and just had this, this thought about like who my great, great grandfather was, how he lived, how the transition from being hunter gatherer to agrarian was for him. And just the tremendous transformation in existence within his lifetime. Thinking about how he would have gone from wearing certain types of clothes to like a different type of clothing to fit into this new lifestyle. And how maybe there were parts of him that he wanted to bring along from the previous life that he probably brought into that existence as he forged through in this new existence in trying to become like a farmer. And so... It was really involved in trying to think about like what kind of fabrics and what kind of utility and what kind of symbols and like what kind of construction would be something that he would have liked or appreciated or what were some of the designs that he would have wanted in that Mm. beyond just being a practical garment. So it was a lot of stuff I was thinking about. Inspired by this idea of his great-great-grandfather, Eric and Amanda started making the first prototypes of the heritage jacket. GNU creates clothing to last using salvaged denim. We actually have a clothing archive. I think Amanda sometimes gets irritated with my collecting habits, but I have garments that are from like my grandpa and my great-grandpa and my dad and my uncles that are pieces that we've used as direct inspiration to tell the story Mm. of not only like us and GNU, but like our family through like their lived experience. When you're talking about the fast fashion realm where clothing is built to be obsolete within less than a season. And the idea is to foster this compulsory behavior around consumerism. Whereas a lot of the older clothing that we have in our collection and our like archive, it, it is tough. And it was made to last and it was made to be durable within those circumstances. Mm-hmm. And 
as much as things were some of them being beautiful. Like I described denim as a very romantic fabric because it kind of tells its own story. Like if you look at an old pair of jeans that maybe your grandfather had or wore, you could see the things that were important to him. Did he carry a pencil? Did he have a certain pocket knife? Did he keep his wallet in like the front pocket or the back pocket or did carry some other items, you know, carrying like a pocket watch, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Those things are actually like almost like rubbed and etched into the garment itself. And so it, it tells a story of someone. It's really interesting to look at some of those garments and just to even see like how they may have walked or they may have like moved their upper body and how the garments like stretched or formed or molded. And it's almost like there's a spirit still part of that woven fabric where they lived out their existence in it. And it's really amazing for me to kind of look at those garments like that. And in the fast fashion realm, mm -hmm. like all of those things, they're just going to be gone. They're going to be consumed and they're going to be thrown away. Oh, totally. They're not going to be kept. They're not going to be passed down. So that's kind of how I look at those pieces and, and the stories that they tell. And then hopefully we're able to kind of bring those stories back to life so that one day, you know, we're able to pass stuff on. And maybe one day our family is able to learn story through oral tradition and potentially through some of these garments. The name Gnu is part of Eric's Ojibwe name, which means brown or golden eagle. Their brand started with leather goods after they made belts for their wedding guests in 2010. Gnu then moved on to working with denim, incorporating symbols, materials, and stories inspired by their families and community. Amanda and Eric are originally from Wisconsin and moved to Portland for jobs in the medical field. I'm the first person to have a professional degree in my family. I'm one of few to go to college. So when I was young, my parents really valued education. And so it was, it's not if you're going to college, it's where. So there were seeds planted about education, but there was no tailoring kind of what path I might go on. When I was in high school, I switched um, my sophomore year, and so there were two new girls. And so, of course, always the new girls are the best friends, right, so that they don't get to know anyone else. And so she was going to go to medicine. I'm like, well, of course, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> this is not what I put on my med school applications, by the way. But <laughs> it started with some healthy competition, okay. and it only continued. And I ended up really loving medicine, actually, human biology and health and whatnot. And so started off on that pathway and found my way into gynecologic oncology. Wow. Which is a long training road. When I was graduating fellowship, um, several years ago, there were kind of two choices. There was a private practice place in, back home, and then there was a chance to come out here to OHSU at an academic center where I could really sort of work on research and cancer prevention with Native women, which was really important to me. And so we interviewed a couple different places, and then Portland was just kind of the perfect fit. And it ended up being a great fit for our creative process, too. Yeah. It's a great community of supportive makers here. Talk about being somewhere you're supposed to be. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, we look at each other, you know, not infrequently, and you're like, this this wouldn't have happened if we had decided to, you know, go to this other place. It, it would have been very different. So, mm. yeah, you end up where you're supposed to be, even if you don't know it. So true. So tell us a little bit more about your tribe and your family. Where is your family from in Wisconsin? I'm a citizen of Oneida Nation, and my grandparents came from two different tribes, so Oneida and Stockbridge, the Green Bay, Shawano area. My mom grew up on the Stockbridge-Munsee Reservation, which is near Shawano, and I actually grew up, my parents, when they first got together, they were on Stockbridge-Munsee lands and then ended up moving for jobs. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up growing up about an hour south of the Oneida Reservation, oh, a okay. small town. So my grandparents actually were part of the boarding school era. And so that's where they met. Mm-hmm. So our family did lose quite a bit through that sort of assimilation process. And there was a lot of heavy colonization to both the tribes. So I, I feel like we come from a long line of survivors and you just do what you got to do to move your family on. And so there was a lot of kind of time spent apart from family where people had to work and travel and all that sort of stuff. A lot of the sort of more traditional practices were not part of my family growing up. One thing that we've probably had the privilege to see in our lifetime is how indigenous identity has really been flourishing. Where when I was a kid, you know, I spent my summers in northern Wisconsin around Kadat, Wisconsin and Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. That's where I school year was in Kadat and Chippewa Falls. But my summers were in northern Minnesota, out on the White Earth Indian Reservation and then just south of the Red Lake Nation. You know, I had cousins and we used to play in the woods and the rivers and the streams and stuff. And there was a big divide between native and non-native in Bemidji. And it was a really interesting experience to say the least about like how that was growing up. Now, when I go back and you're in Bemidji and you see bilingual signs everywhere, even in like the grocery store where the names for things are in both English and Ojibwe, it's really cool. You know, you start seeing kids around, even like non-native kids the native and non-native kids will like greet each other in Ojibwe and stuff. That's pretty cool. That's amazing. Whereas like when I was a kid, the only Ojibwe language I ever heard was Wednesday night church was Ojibwe and then maybe at a funeral. But it wasn't like in the household. Mm -hmm. It wasn't common outside of that, at least for me, right? And to see this transformation happening, I mean, it's really cool to see that happening. It's even like the work you're doing to like raise awareness and kind of illuminate these elements. Like that's important, right? Because I think there is this whole lifting up and this rising up that's happening where people are asserting like, well, this actually is my story and this is who I am and I'm going to live it this way. Well, we're here with Eric and Amanda of GNU. We'll be right back to continue our conversation. Since the dawn of time, the salmon have returned. Compelled by instinct, they respond in the millions. A reminder that, with purpose and perseverance, we can chart the course of our future. As Bristol Bay Native Corporation has done for nearly 50 years, investing in future generations here in a place that's always been. We're here with Eric and Amanda of GNU. So let's talk about the denim market and companies within this particular world of denim. You know, GNU is the only Native American-owned denim line. And how do you see there being more opportunities for Indigenous people in this field? In the spaces that Amanda and I go to on the global stage, as far as like fashion shows, going to market to, you know, get your collection out into the world, 
We have not encountered another indigenous person yet in that space. Not one. And that has been a real eye-opening experience for us, at least for me. And I think even worse, what's really hard is how the fashion ecosystem will legitimize people who are not indigenous, who are blatantly appropriating, copying, stealing indigenous stuff, indigenous designs, indigenous culture. And in the U.S., it's not even as profound as we've seen in like Southeast Asia, what we've seen in Northern Europe. It's really a little bit shocking to see how there are these brands that make up these stories of being like blessed or brought into it's always the Navajo Nation. So like they were blessed and they were adopted by the Navajo Nation and now they have this big Navajo Nation spirit that they have and then they make Navajo jewelry and Navajo designs and like all this stuff. Wow. It's really been a a little bit shocking to me. And I think it's been hard for me not to get angry right away. Mm -hmm. Well, I think part of it too is like, one, claiming a culture that's you know, not yours, but then profiting off of it, right? Like you're making a living off of someone else's and, culture. Yeah. And I think that thing, especially with the jewelry, that's so hard is like we have really good friends who are indigenous silversmiths, indigenous jewelers, mm. indigenous artisans who are tremendously talented. And to see them just scrape by and struggle, yet seeing these other companies that that are making indigenous jewelry. And, and this is Native American jewelry. It's how they market it. It's how they say it. And there's not an indigenous person within, you know, a hundred miles of what they're doing. Wow. And they are making a tremendous amount of profit off of that. And that's, that's hard for me because I feel like we as indigenous people belong in that space. Mm -hmm. We have something valuable to contribute and not so much like us is like, adults and as individuals or whatever, but like I see this whole generation of youth who has this creativity and this talent and this eagerness and this brilliance and this just glow within them. You're talking about that confidence, but I get to see that, you know, from an educational perspective, like being out in community, taking care of indigenous patients in the clinic that I work in. And I just want those people that have that flame to have opportunity as we've seen this, it's like more and more about, at least from my perspective, there isn't the opportunity for some of these youth to succeed. And if we can just like open the door a little bit mm -hmm. so that they can walk or run through it, that's where I see people being able to enter the platform in the space. I think that in our lives, we've benefited greatly from mentors. And so both in our health professions lives, as well as through the business, you know, we always think about like, how do you look to the next generation and bring them forward and give someone a leg up and inspire? And in our professional careers, we were able to do that much more easily because it's part of the medical training sort of paradigm. And we're really hoping to be able to inspire and help Indigenous youth kind of get exposed to things and get a leg up. So we hope that in the future we can develop some small internships, just connect people, because sometimes it's just the matter of exposing someone to something little that inspires them to keep going and, and to, to do something really amazing. And so we hope to be a little part of a catalyst for Indigenous youth.
for someone that might be listening to this podcast and they have an idea, like sort of like how you were talking about, I have an idea and I'm writing it on napkins and I'm inspired, I'm excited. What is that next step to take? Where do they go next? Where should they go next? That's the hard part because to do it all yourself and all alone without mentorship and guidance, it's pretty daunting. And that's why I see the importance of mentorship in all of this. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're like a fashion student and you're drawing stuff, you're doing that. I mean, I think you're going to at some level know like the next steps, whether you take it into making a pattern and then you like pick out your fabrics and then you do fittings and then you work to dial in the fitting and then you try and identify a factory. But we don't work full time at this, but it's not been easy to be able to try and navigate this world Mm -hmm. at all. I mean, we've been doing this now for like eight years ish and it's been a lot of trial and error, a lot of like secrets, a lot of like trying to develop relationships with people um, and to earn people's trust over time. But I think that when we made the jump into apparel, the one thing that just didn't die was our collective dream to make it happen. Like we didn't give up on the idea. Mm-hmm. We just kept leaning in and people said no. Or after we made stuff once, people came back to us just like, you actually can't do this. I was like, wait, what? We talked to you about this ahead of time. And I've got all these emails from you guys saying that we could do this. That was daunting too. Cause like when you get a letter from a big company from their lawyer saying like, you can't do something because it's too close to what they've done or it wasn't in an agreement or whatever. You're just like, wait, what? Like I talked to you guys about So lean into that passion and lean into that idea to have your voice be heard. This is the classic Eric, Amanda sort of dichotomy. He's very much a visionary and sort of a broad brushstroke. And I'm like a process person. So when you ask that question, I'm like, okay, this is what you need to do. This is, (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, don't give up and lean in. And I mean, if somebody is standing by with a pen and a paper and like, what do I need to do? I'm your gal. Um, (laughs) Yes. Here we go. Listen up, everyone. (laughs) I think a little bit, it depends where you're at. You know, are you a high schooler? Are you an art student in college? Are you just dappling? You know, depending on where you're at. But I think if you have the opportunity to participate in schooling through high school or community college classes, just getting some basic kind of skill building stuff Mm -hmm. to kind of round out your dreams, right? Because if you have a natural aptitude for design, you know, you want to cultivate that, right? You want to take your raw material and have someone help you refine those skills. And so community coursework, formal coursework, that'll start getting you into a community where other people know people. And I think looking for opportunities to do internships, things like that, because that's how you start to build a little bit of momentum. And you might identify, okay, this is where I'm at. These are the other things I need to help round this out. So you might not go from drawing on a napkin to designer overnight, but if you keep with it and keep building those little skills and finding mentors along the way. That's how you, you know, fulfill that dream of becoming either a designer or pattern maker or what other element of fashion you want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hilarious too, because like you're getting to see into like the the crazy big picture idea stuff and then like the actual like yes, no process stuff. <laughs> and so we have this process within GNU. It's very, has a very fancy name. It's called Yummy Yucky. <laughs> yummy icky yummy icky okay and what it is is usually we start with some crazy idea i.e me 
and we're working through this. And Amanda is exceptionally decisive. And so if I can get her an A and a B example, like, is it this design or that design? Is it this color? Is it that color? Is it this? Is it this? Is it yummy or is it icky? Which one is it? And should like, and so like almost all of the the major decisions around design stuff we've ever made have been made in a split second by this gal with yummy icky. It's like that one. It's awesome. So I guess also having a balanced portfolio. If you have all visionaries in in one operation, that might be difficult for actualization of things. Or if you have all process oriented people, you might not have the creativity. So rounding out your mentorship team. And you, another symbol you guys put in, in your, a lot of your apparel is the Thunderbird, right? Every few years, we've tended to get onto a theme. And the Thunderbird theme really popped up during the year that we were transitioning from home to Portland. And for me, you know, the Thunderbird was a symbol I saw a lot as a kid, mm-hmm. whether it was like carved into a log or painted on some side of someone's house or garage or, you know, etched into somebody's car. That was a symbol that I saw a lot as a kid. And then as I made the trip west by myself in a 71 F-250 truck, bringing it out to Portland, there were a lot of thunderstorms. There were a lot of moments to like sit there and kind of think about what those stories and what those teachings mean and meant, as well as like trying to like remain grounded to back home and to like remember the things that I learned or saw or was taught as a kid to like carry us in this next chapter. And so the Thunderbird really was a strong theme for us. Where do you see GNU going next? Like where are you guys excited to move into, um, whether it be new products or new ways you're pushing your brand out there? So the vision from my perspective would be more about being organized enough as a brand so that we can maintain sustainability financially as a brand so that we can start bringing in American and Alaska Native youth who want to explore and ultimately enter the fashion ecosystem. There's no way that we should be the only indigenous brand showing at these markets. It just, it blows my mind. It's wrong because there's so much talent. There's so much light. There's so much energy out there in those youth. And so if we can help provide some opportunity there and function as a talent incubator here in Portland, Oregon. I mean, look at Portland, right? Yeah. Some of the largest apparel companies on the planet are here. And there's an incredible athletic outdoor apparel scene. And if we can get more indigenous youth to enter that space, that would be fun for me while maintaining that vision towards story and like premium materials and putting out the best products that we can. That's what I would say. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for joining me on the Native Artist Podcast. And I'm excited to see what GNU does next. So thanks again. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. You can find out more about the Native Artist Podcast at nativeartistpodcast.com. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to rate, subscribe, and comment. Theme music by Inuk Artist Reet. 
Additional music in this episode from Ray Zaragoza, EJ Boogie the Beat, and Samantha Crane. The Native Artist Podcast is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts. The Siri Foundation, supporting Alaska Native education, culture, and heritage since 1982. And Bristol Bay Native Corporation. This episode is produced by me, your host, Alexis Salee. This has been a production of Indigify. <laughs>